This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 14th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, late-stage vaccine trials are now well underway, and we're learning more about the vaccine candidates and what these trials are looking like. Today, let's go back a bit and discuss where these vaccines are coming from. We can start with a new paper that we published today comparing two early-stage vaccine candidates. What does this article tell us? This paper describes a comparative early phase study of two vaccine candidates being developed by the same company. In fact, these are two of several candidates that any company brings forward. Usually, multiple candidates get prioritized during the development process and at the end of preclinical development before they actually get into people the most promising ones are chosen to move into the clinic. And that's largely because of the expense and the safety concerns with putting things into humans. But these are unusual times. In this case, rather than choosing one, the investigators proceeded with two very similar vaccines and performed early phase studies that were actually fairly large for early phase studies, including almost 200 participants, to choose which of the two vaccines should move forward into late phase testing. Both of these are messenger RNA-based vaccines. They encode very slightly different versions of the SARS-CoV-2 spike glycoprotein. This is the same protein, which is the antigen in almost all of the vaccines that are currently under development. One of the vaccines encodes the full-length protein, and the other one has a truncated protein, which removes the membrane anchoring domain of spike. The trial is actually an amalgam of several smaller trials, each consisting of 15 patients with 12 assigned to receive a vaccine at one dose or another, and three assigned to a placebo control. Almost all of the groups received two doses separated by 21 days, and the groups could consist of either younger adults who are ages 18 to 55 or older adults ages 65 to 85. The primary outcome of this phase one study was safety, as is always the case with phase one studies. But the investigators also looked at measures of immunogenicity to allow them to determine which candidate and which dose would move forward into later stage trials. To summarize a good deal of data, both vaccines appear to be relatively safe, though remember this is a small study, so it can be difficult to see less common side effects. Both candidates at some doses produce the typical reactogenic symptoms, which consisted of both local and systemic reactions at somewhat different rates depending on the dose. As has been seen with other candidates, there's something of a dose response with symptoms being somewhat more marked at higher antigen loads. Reassuringly, both the safety data and the efficacy data look fairly similar in both age groups. So it appears that the vaccine has similar immunogenicity. It produces a similar immune response in the elderly who, of course, are at highest risk of severe disease. And although the differences were rather small, the investigators chose the higher dose of the full-length protein to proceed into the late-stage trials, which are currently underway. So, Eric, I think that part of what we're witnessing here is the speed with which studies are being done to advance vaccine constructs for clinical efficacy testing and the judgments that are made along the way as to which candidates have the best safety and immunogenicity profile, because in these early studies, we don't see evidence of efficacy. That's the point of later studies, the phase three trials. 
But these are some of the foundational data that one company has utilized to determine which construct to move forward and to see how they designed these studies to do them so expeditiously. Because again, many of these studies in traditional vaccine development may be spread out over years. And what has been done here is how to do multiple comparisons, both by construct and by study population, such as age group, to be able to determine key parameters of safety or reactogenicity, as well as the quality of the immune response elicited. So I think the design of this study, which is posted online, provides insight into how one group has approached rapid development while not short-circuiting the safety process, but looking quickly at key parameters to make important decisions to develop candidate vaccine for advanced testing. So these candidates, like many of the candidates that are currently being tested, are using technologies that haven't been employed in vaccines before. So how did we get to this stage? Well, it's worth going back and remembering that until recently, vaccinology, the science of developing vaccines, has largely been empiric. The first vaccine famously developed by Edward Jenner was for smallpox, and it came from a clinical observation, the fact that milkmaids in a part of England weren't getting smallpox. And this led to trying to deliberately infect people with cowpox, which is a related virus, but much less virulent, and showing that the recipients of the cowpox were subsequently protected against smallpox. In fact, it turns out it wasn't just cowpox. And last year, we published a study that looked at an old vaccine lot that had been discovered and sequencing it and finding out that that was actually horsepox rather than cowpox. And the strain that we use now for protecting a smallpox, vaccinia, is something that resembles both cowpox and horsepox, but isn't identical to either. So it turns out that many related viruses can have the same effect. But while that observation was made, it wasn't clear why it worked for a very long time. And it turns out that all of these viruses share antigens that are sufficiently similar to provide cross-protection. And so this gives the idea of using attenuated organisms, organisms which share antigens but are not fully virulent as vaccines. And it's the basis for many of the vaccines we use now. For example, the live polio vaccine, the measles, mumps, and rubella, the newer rotavirus vaccines, or at least some of the rotavirus vaccines, all use this strategy of attenuated viruses that can infect but fail to cause disease. One can argue how well we understand the immunologic basis for protection elicited by vaccinia against smallpox. And do we truly understand the correlates of protection? But that's an academic discussion. The reality is that deployment of these vaccines or these constructs led to a therapeutic benefit, meaning the absence of infection of wild-type organism. And that's the fundamental observation needed to establish vaccine efficacy. And that's why in the development of a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, we must do the safety and immunogenicity, but that doesn't necessarily inform us of actual protection. And that's where the larger scale trials looking at clinical endpoints will be the critical piece of data to determine efficacy. So we haven't heard much about an attenuated vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. 
Are there traditional alternatives that are being looked at? Well, it often is hard to figure out how to make a pathogen safe, but still have it grow to enough of an extent that it produces enough antigen to induce an immune response that is protective. And for SARS-CoV-2, this hasn't been worked out yet. And as you can imagine, it's difficult, especially without a great animal model, to figure out whether a virus is attenuated enough to be safe. So most newer vaccines actually don't use this strategy. Instead, they consist of either inactivated pathogens or what are referred to as subunits. Inactivated vaccines are pretty straightforward. For example, the inactivated polio virus vaccine is simply made by incubating the virus, the fully virulent virus in this case, with formaldehyde. That neutralizes their activity. They can no longer infect, but the viral particles, if done correctly, still retain their antigenicity so that the antigens are still there and can still induce an immune response. But for most vaccines, we don't even do that. Instead, most vaccines consist of a single component or a very small number of components of a pathogen that have been purified. For this to work, of course, one has to know which components provide protection. And that's not always easy to figure out, especially for complex pathogens like bacteria, which have thousands of different potential antigens. For viruses, it's a little easier because there are a limited number of candidate molecules. And usually those protective antigens or potentially protective antigens are the glycoproteins that coat the surface of the viral particle. These purified proteins can often provide good protection, depending on the virus, when given in combination with a compound called an adjuvant, which is something that produces an inflammatory response and basically boosts the specific immune response. So a good example of this is hepatitis B vaccine, which uses the surface antigen of hepatitis B, which is on the viral coat. For SARS-CoV-2, as we discussed before, almost all of the efforts have been focused on one of the viral proteins, the spike glycoprotein. This is a complicated structure. It consists of three identical subunits that are required for the virus to fuse its lipid coat with the cell membrane and allow the core of the virus to penetrate into the cell and replicate within the cell. Now, when the virus encounters a cell, the cellular receptor, that spike glycoprotein undergoes a huge conformational change. It completely changes its shape. And that change in shape is part of what forces the fusion of the two membranes to occur. And that structure is very stable. Once it forms, it's quite stable. But the immune system only sees the pre-fusion form of the protein. And so one of the clever pieces that's incorporated into many of the vaccines we're talking about are mutations that are made to lock the spike protein into its pre-fusion form so that it can't switch into that conformation, which is probably not protective. Right now, there are two vaccines that consist of the purified glycoprotein that are in late-stage trial. And the early phase data that we've seen suggests that it's safe in, of course, a small number of subjects who've received it, and that it produces a reasonable immune response. Maybe I should say here, because we keep talking about inducing the immune response, that we're seeing the kinds of immune responses that we hope to see, but we have no idea that those correlate with protection, getting back to Lindsay's mention of correlates. Eric, I think you raised so many important points in that what is created as a vaccine, and if it's an inactivated whole cell or whole virion, that has a myriad of epitopes, potentially in different conformations. 
when one creates a selective immunogen, such as the spike glycoprotein, then it's targeting a given epitope of the organism, presuming that it's either immunologically dominant or immunologically dominant in what is needed for protection. And as preclinical models have emerged, both the rodent and the non-human primate, the spike glycoprotein does appear to be a very important antigen for protection. But those data are still being generated and will continue to inform how we think about what's likely to be the most protective antigen or antigens. But it does look like the spike glycoprotein appears to be important for protection in preclinical models and is observed that immune response is observed in those who have recovered from SARS-CoV-2. So patients who are convalescing have cleared infection and therefore we can look at their immune response and make inference as to the immune responses present being relevant to how they controlled and cleared the infection. The issue of confirmation, which is something we have not thought about as much as I think we should, is what does the immune system see prior to infection? So prior to a cell becoming infected, what is circulating and potentially transmitting or amplifying the infection? And that's your point, Eric, about the prefusion state. That's the state of the virion prior to infecting a cell. That's the state that we want to immunologically neutralize to prevent infection of the next cells. And that becomes important for us to understand the biology and to therefore utilize that biology to create immune responses that target the virion prior to infecting a cell. And so the prefusion concept is a very important concept that has emerged that has informed vaccine immunogen design. You know, Lindsay, as you said before, what we know about protective immune responses or immune responses in general is still really in the relatively early stages. And I think that one of the things we're learning right now through the process of making these vaccines is, are there ways of accelerating the process and how much do we need to know in order to get there? And I think we're learning much more about how to make a vaccine, not just how to make this vaccine, but I'm hoping that there'll be lessons that are broader as to how to make the next vaccine for the next outbreak, which we all think is certain to happen at some point. So if only two of the candidates are using a purified glycoprotein, that must mean that all the other candidates are using less traditional approaches. Can you talk about how those work? Steve, before we get there, let's think about what kind of immunity we want to induce. We broadly divide the acquired immune responses in which the immune system learns about a new antigen response into two categories. There are humoral responses and cell-mediated responses. Humoral immunity refers to antibodies produced by B lymphocytes that are important for protection, largely against extracellular pathogens and toxins and such. Cell-mediated immunity, which is largely mediated by T lymphocytes, has a large role to play in fighting off intracellular pathogens like viruses. But both can be seen in a variety of infections and vaccines could, in theory, induce either response. And in fact, either one might be protective, even if it's not the natural response to infection. So we have to think through tools that allow us to induce one or the other, or both in many cases. 
Humoral immunity is the easier one. Most purified proteins, like the one that we're talking about, induce strong antibody responses, but not so much in the way of cellular immunity, although there are tricks one can use to boost that. In order to get a strong cell-mutated immune response, we need to deliver antigens to the insides of cells. And the easiest way to do that is to get the cells to produce the antigens themselves. And so how do we go about that? The simplest way has been to introduce DNA that encodes the antigen into cells so that they can use their own synthetic machinery. This approach has been used for several years and it works really well in some animal models, but thus far, at least in small clinical trials, it hasn't proven to be as effective in humans. So an alternative is the newer technology that we discussed when we were discussing the paper published today, which is the use of messenger RNA. RNA has been difficult to use because it's not a very stable molecule. It's easily degraded or lost. But there have been several technical advances that have made RNAs that can get into cells and direct the ongoing production of proteins for sustained periods. The vaccine we published today, as I said, uses this technology, as does another vaccine that is currently in clinical trials that we published a couple of months ago. So there are big advantages to using this approach. The molecules are synthetic. They're chemically synthesized so that there's not much concern about biological contamination of the reagents. In principle, the synthesis should be scalable so that you could get vaccines out there more quickly, as well as test them more quickly. And finally, as has already been shown, the movement from identifying an antigen to getting a vaccine into the clinic can be very fast. And the messenger RNA-based vaccines were the quickest ones out of the gate. But you should keep in mind that while there have been several mRNA vaccines that have gone into people in clinical trials, there are no approved vaccines right now. And to my knowledge, and Lindsay can correct me, I don't think there's been large-scale safety testing, not at this scale that we're talking about in these trials. So we don't have rigorous information about the safety and long-term efficacy of this approach yet. Eric, you point out that we don't know what is protective immunity to SARS-CoV-2. The vaccine constructs that are moving forward elicit immune responses, and they likely elicit both B and T cell immune responses. And part of what is embedded in vaccine design is how does it augment or amplify different arms of the immune system? And some vaccines may be more geared to a T cell response versus a B cell response or a blended response. And the old pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine had very little T cell or no T cell help, which is why alteration of that vaccine allowed T cell processing, antigen presentation, and memory. So I think that it's something that we'll pay attention to with these different technologies for SARS-CoV going forward and has been part of the development process is how does it get processed by the immune system and what type of immune response does it elicit? Both B cell and T cell, as you mentioned, but also on the T cell side, is it more Th1 versus Th2, speaking to how much T cell help versus primarily T cell response in antigen clearance, and what are the safety profiles, theoretically, of different aspects of the T cell response? Lindsay, not being a vaccinologist, um, looking through the literature, I'm struck by one thing. 
it's been great that there have been several different approaches to developing vaccines. And in theory, one of the advantages would be if they were inducing different amounts of humoral or cellular immunity so that we got a spectrum of responses, some of which might be better than others. Now, it's relatively easy to measure antibody and the types of antibody being produced. It's a little more complicated to measure cell-mediated immune responses because they're quite varied and there are many different kinds of assays one can do. Nevertheless, my impression is that many of the vaccines, most of the ones that have been reported, actually are producing fairly similar responses to each other, at least by the assays that are being used. So although there is a variety of approaches, they seem to have converged on a similar set of induced responses. I'm not sure that the mRNA approach compared to the viral vectored approach compared to the protein approach actually elicit the same quality of immune response. They may in terms of the antigen specificity, because the antigen specificity obviously will direct the focused immune response. But in terms of CD4, CD8, and the quality and quantity of the antibody responses, I think they are different between the platforms. I raise this because the issue of a correlate of protection, if one of these field trials demonstrates efficacy, there will be a look to see which immune parameter best correlates with that efficacy. And then a question will emerge as to, is that a parameter that can be used for other vaccines? Or do different vaccines elicit different types of immune responses, thus not easily correlated in terms of protection? And that will be an area of great discussion, I hope, because it means we have successful vaccines. But I think ultimately, the field trial showing protection will then allow us to go back to the bench to determine which parameters are needed or most informative for that protection, which can iterate in creating second and third generation vaccines that presumably are more targeted to the immune response we want, assuming the protection is inadequate from the first generation. So you've described the mRNA approach in some detail. Can you also describe the viral vector approach that Lindsay just mentioned? The concept of using viral vectors really represents a different way of getting antigens into cells or getting, in this case, cells to produce the antigen themselves. In this system, viruses which are incapable of causing disease are used as vectors. That is, they're used to carry the gene encoding the antigen into the host cell, which then goes on to produce the viral glycoprotein. And because it's producing it intracellularly, that viral glycoprotein is primarily presented and processed through a system that induces largely a cell-mediated immune response, although it also induces antibodies. The major candidates to do this are adenoviruses, and there's been a lot of work to develop different adenoviruses, both human adenoviruses and animal adenoviruses, that can be used as viral vectors to carry antigens into cells. And that's resulted in several kind of off-the-shelf solutions that researchers can plug a gene into and move fairly quickly into clinical trials. We've seen that, certainly, during this outbreak. 
And the advantages of using these are that the investigators have chosen adenoviral serotypes of human viruses or animal viruses that people are unlikely to already have antibodies against, and therefore the viruses are more likely to reach their target cells and transfer the antigen genes. So there's been a little more experience with these. So we know something about safety in moderate-sized clinical trials. Again, it's likely we're going to learn more about the safety of these vaccines from these trials than from previous ones. I know Lindsay's very familiar with a current vaccine that uses adenovirus as a vector. Yes, Eric, I've been involved with adenoviral vectors for decades associated with HIV vaccine development and then other pathogen development. And your points are well taken that the viral vector delivery system, it's a delivery system, and one puts the antigen of interest into it and then delivers that antigen or epitope to the immune system, hopefully eliciting protective immune responses. The different adenoviruses do elicit different types of immune responses, so it's not homogeneous. And your point about pre-existing immunity to the vector you know, with AD5 being a classic adenovirus serotype 5, where there's high population immunity, does potentially have an impact on the ability of that delivery system to deliver its cargo. So that's an area of active investigation to understand how pre-existing immunity may impact how a delivery system works, and also why some of the delivery systems chosen, like the CHIMP ADNO, which the Oxford group chose, there's a limited to no population immunity, so it mitigates that concern. However, with any of these delivery systems, Eric, as you mentioned, safety is difficult to know because if you've studied it in 1,000 people, you don't know a 1 in 10,000 risk. If you study in 10,000 people, you don't know a 1 in 100,000 and so on. So safety is always going to be a parameter to be monitored carefully because it reflects the frequency or rarity of the event and the number of people who have been studied in a way to capture that event or those events. And that's a forever ongoing process, even after vaccine efficacy for a given construct is established. We always have to monitor safety in larger numbers and based on the safety data, as with the rotavirus, one can then say there is a side effect, but the clinical benefit is orders of magnitude greater than any given side effect. And that's where we as a scientific community have to perform these measurements so that the risk-benefit ratio of constructs can be understood and we as a community can make determinations about the overall individual community public health benefit. For any of these uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, none of them have been established as efficacious. Those studies are going on to determine the efficacy. At the same time, safety is forever going to be monitored because of the issue of less common events that can only be seen as large numbers of individuals participate. Speaking of safety, we heard yesterday that a clinical trial was paused after a safety boundary was reached. And a vaccine trial was also paused after adverse events occurred in two participants. There was a similar pause on another vaccine trial several weeks ago. So with all of this, should we be worried? That's a complicated question, and I think there are two answers. The first one is no. We should be encouraged by the fact that there is strong trial oversight and that someone's looking out for these kinds of safety events. 
every large trial has some bad events, which may or may not be connected to the treatment that's being studied. And good oversight ensures that we understand whether these events are likely to be connected with what is being investigated or not. In the vaccine trial that was paused earlier, the trial was resumed, at least in many sites, after consideration, suggesting that the safety signal that was seen either wasn't attributed to the vaccine or was not severe enough to warrant stopping the trial. The current studies which have been paused, both were paused by, as far as we can tell, there's been very little reporting, by the data safety monitoring boards, which found issues. In the case of the vaccine, what's been reported in the press is that there were a couple of events, but we know nothing about those events, whether they were identical to each other or what the issues were and how severe they were. In the case of the other trial, which is a trial of a monoclonal antibody being used as therapy, we know even less about what occurred. But I think we should have some confidence in the process. Does this mean that these agents may not be safe? The answer is maybe, and I think time will tell. We'll have to learn much more to tell what's going on. I do want to go back to the broader discussion, though, we're talking about a lot of different vaccine candidates with a lot of different modalities. And I think that's very good from a safety standpoint. It means that we're coming at it from different angles and we're unlikely, perhaps or less likely, to see the same problems with vaccines that work in very different ways. So I remain very optimistic in general. Steve, these safety events get all of our attention and should. But let's take a step back. If we have a community of 100,000 individuals, many of whom are older and with comorbid illness, what event rate would we expect over the next year of medical issues? And that is part of the challenge of conducting these trials. Even though any given trial may be somewhat smaller, collectively between the various field trials going on, there are well over 100,000 individuals participating. And that's terrific. These are true heroes in the sense that they're volunteering to help us understand how to develop countermeasures, be they vaccines to prevent or therapies to treat and prevent. But this whole effort is being done in a fishbowl with incredible attention and transparency. And it's important to increase that transparency to build the trust in the community that these are being done well. But fundamentally, answering scientific questions is complicated and is challenging. And so we need to not forget that we need to have a systematic process that carefully designs the studies and conducts the studies to ensure that they're done correctly, both to determine efficacy, but even more importantly, to ensure safety. And what we're seeing is that singleton events are triggering careful reviews by independent bodies. And that's how the process should work. And we should let those bodies be at the FDA or EMA, but even more importantly, the DSMBs, because they're very close to the trials. The DSMBs are the data safety monitoring boards. They're independent boards established to help oversee the safety of these trials. These boards are comprised of very senior and thoughtful people who are highly experienced and unrelated to the trials so that they allow an independent evaluation weighing all of these issues. My heart goes out to the members of the DSMBs for these trials because it is an incredibly challenging job, but so important to ensure safety 
as any singleton events become very hard to assess the bigger meaning, but they need to do that. And they are providing the reassurance we as a community need that safety is being guarded and protected in the process to determine efficacy. So I think that what I see in this is that the process is working. These pauses are occurring to allow proper consideration of events as they occur. And as these determinations are made, hopefully enough information will be shared with the community so we all can be reassured that the process is as high quality as it currently appears to be, and I'm sure it is. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.